Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On this Veterans Day, we're going to consider veterans' issues, specifically reintegration. Uh, Some veterans have uh, troubles when they come back after having served their country. And uh, we have signature injuries of the latest wars, PTSD, a traumatic brain injury. We'll uh, check in to see how those are being taken care of. And uh, some issues uh, that you may not be familiar with, for example, Veterans Court. Uh, an attempt to uh, to help veterans through the legal system. Uh, joining us today is Matt LaPlante, who is Assistant Professor of Journalism in the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. He's covered veterans' issues for the Salt Lake Tribune for seven years. Uh, we'll also be talking with former Executive Director of the Utah Department of Veterans Affairs, Terry Scow, with Public Affairs Officer for U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, Jill Atwood, and former U.S. Army Captain Stacy Baird, Director of Sierra Club Outdoors Mission. That's an initiative to reconnect Americans, veterans in particular, to the outdoors and use of nature to facilitate reintegration. Matt LaPlante, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thanks for uh, having me. So uh, you, you're a veteran of the Navy. I am, yes. Uh, then went into journalism, and uh, people will recognize your byline for the Salt Lake Tribune for several years. Yeah, I was uh, at the Salt Lake Tribune from uh, 2004 to 2011, and uh, the majority of that time was covering military and veterans issues. And uh, now at Utah State University. Correct. Yeah, I cover, uh, I uh, no longer cover, I teach uh, introduction to news writing and uh, global crisis uh, reporting. Mm. Uh, so we're going to talk about a few issues that uh, you have covered with regard to, uh, to, to Veterans Affairs, but just generally. Um, but, uh, how do you think people are, I, I think it is on the radar of people these days that, uh, that you know, we honor veteran service. And we want to make sure the veterans are taken care of when they come home. Yeah, I think it is on uh, on people's radars, maybe now more than ever. I think there's still a, a significant disconnect between uh, veterans and the general populace, um, or I should put it the other way, the, the general populace and veterans. Uh, I, I think it's hard for people who haven't had similar experiences to fully comprehend, fully understand, fully uh, empathize with the the plight of people who are uh, returning, particularly returning from combat. Um, and that's that's a that's a disconnect that's probably not going away anytime soon. We have this all volunteer military now where uh, we're not sharing sacrifices across the board like like perhaps once happened in the draft era and certainly in the World War II era where there's you know rationing and and you know uh, you know homemakers who were going to work everybody kind of sacrificing equally that shifted a lot and so you know the ability that's uh, that we have uh, today to kind of you know communicate uh, better than ever before uh, the stories and uh, the plights of veterans I think are, is really important because otherwise you know people often don't understand uh, it is striking when you look at the percentages. I don't have it right in front of me, but it's it's a small percentage of Americans who who serve. Right. Yeah. I think I think it's somewhere around one in ten. Um, and uh, certainly, if you think about, I mean, you can carry that out, and you say, well, almost everybody knows somebody who serves or has served. But it's remarkable. It really is remarkable. I'll get into conversations with people. In fact, it happened to me the other day on an airplane. And uh, the person sitting next to me, uh, you know, we were talking, we kind of went over each other's history, and I had mentioned my service in the Navy. And um, this person was just 
very clearly fascinated by that and very clearly had not had a conversation with a veteran ever before in their life. Um, and you think about the significance of that, that, it, that anybody in this day and age could be disconnected that much, that they haven't even had a conversation with somebody who served in the military. Um, and we have, we have a great share of our population who um, maybe not in that extreme, but is, is really disconnected uh, to that degree. And so uh, we want to talk about uh, reintegration, uh, veterans uh, coming home. And, and many veterans would come home and not have serious problems. Oh yeah, I think the the majority, and this is an important thing to remember. Um, you know, the the majority of people who are veterans, you're not going to be able to tell. They're not the people who are standing on the street corners uh, in you know old military fatigues. Um, they're not living uh, under a bridge. They're not suffering from extreme. Uh, cases of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you know, I mean, it, it should go without saying, but veterans look like anybody else. They act like anybody else. They work like anybody else. Uh, they carry their service with them often uh, in very unseen ways. Um, and so, we, you know, when we talk about veterans' issues and veterans' problems in particular, um, it is important to remember that we're not talking about, you know, the, the vast majority of the people who have come home uh, from service. Uh, and even from combat service. Um, that said, uh, these are issues that are are should be addressed so that the support network is there for any veteran uh, who who might need it. Uh, so some of the problems uh, would be physical. You 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 know you have injuries, lost limbs, etc. Et and unfortunately, signature injuries of our latest wars, are brain injuries. Right. Yeah. And this is uh, you know particularly with the advent of uh, roadside bombs, uh, commonly called improvised explosive devices. Um, which are explosives that are often uh, hidden under the surface of the road or just by the side of the road, uh, and they're either timed or triggered or um, or actually remotely detonated to go off as military convoys go by. Um, and you know, oftentimes uh, they are deadly, but more often, far more often, um, they are extremely damaging, and uh, the concussive power. Of these bombs, and particularly, uh, you know, the repeat exposure to these sorts of expo- uh, explosions, um, can do things to the human brain that we simply have no background uh, or significant background in dealing with. It's just it has not been that common, um, you know. And even even looking at uh, you know NFL players who take repeated uh, concussive blows to the head, it, it's not the same kind of injury. Uh, it, it's, a, it's at once uh, physically catastrophic and uh, psychologically catastrophic as well. And the combination of these two things is essentially rewiring the brains of a lot of combat veterans uh, to the point that uh, these uh, these brain injuries, uh, traumatic brain, brain injuries, which is commonly abbreviated as TBI, um, are are you know, part of the latest wave of injuries that we're seeing and just now understanding how to deal with. And uh, I believe you've reported on on, uh, on some of this. Um, I, I wonder if you're thinking about some people you've talked to. How do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you? And, and I think there's we're still pushing horizons in terms of treatment. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, we are still just now um, identifying 
ailments that are linked to exposure from Agent Orange in Vietnam. So if you think about that, if you think about the decades that have passed, the lifetimes that have passed, the people who have come and gone and died without treatment because we are just now identifying uh, the symptoms of, uh, of Agent Orange exposure. Um, and now if you think about the fact that we are just now recognizing TBI as a significant problem for veterans of the most current wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, I, the, 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 if you play that out and think about like, it could be, it could be 20 years, it could be 30 years before we fully know and comprehend what has happened to these people. Uh, and so in the meantime, uh, we've got a lot of work to do and we've got a lot of, uh, I, quite frankly, compassion that we have to offer um, because we don't understand and we can't understand right now fully what everybody's going through who's had, who's suffered this kind of injury. Let's bring in, uh, now, by the way, we're talking with Matt LaPlante, who is a former reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. He's a, a Navy veteran, uh, covered Veterans Affairs for the Tribune, now is uh, teaching at Utah State University, assistant uh, professor of journalism in the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. He's with us for the hour. We're joined now for about 15 minutes by Jill Atwood, who is a public affairs officer with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. So on this Veterans Day, we thought it appropriate to to look at veterans' issues. I wondered, maybe give us an overview of of the kinds of problems encountered by veterans that, uh, of course, the Department of Veterans Affairs is working on. Sure. Well, you know, our newest combat veterans... Um, they come home, and the, the most common problem they're dealing with is readjustment issues. You know, they've been away for a long time. Uh, they come home, and, and in the case here in, in Utah, we have a lot of National Guard and Reserve. So they come home, and they're thrust really right back into their, their normal lives. They, they go back to their jobs. They go back to their families, um, sometimes in as little as a week's time. So you can imagine that's a, that's a big jolt to the system going from a high adrenaline combat situation, uh, maybe they're in a uh, fairly prestigious position, a, a significant leadership role in the military. They come home possibly to uh, a, a mundane job, um, something not quite as exciting, a desk job. And so they struggle um, to integrate back into their family life and into their home life, um, Usually their friends, their family don't really understand what they've been through. Um, and a lot of them have seen and done uh, some, some horrible things that they're struggling with. So we're seeing a lot of post-traumatic stress. We're seeing common readjustment issues. As uh, Mr. LaPlante was talking about before, we're seeing um, traumatic brain injury from um, several consistent you know, blows to the head from IEDs or improvised explosive devices. Um, these are all things that, that we're seeing, and really the big problem is for us at the VA is getting these veterans to recognize that there is help, there are people who care, um, they can be taken care of, they can get better as long as they reach out, as long as they make that first step. And so that's why on Veterans Day and really every day we are trying to educate not only our veterans, but their family members, the community clergy, police departments, fire departments, whoever will listen. We're trying to educate on these VA benefits 
because many times it is the family member that eventually pushes the veteran to come in and, and seek treatment. Jill, Jill, you're a veteran, um, and that gives you a special entryway into an understanding into the lives of the people that you work with. Uh Um, More and more, we have a a society of non-veterans, but certainly there's a lot of people out there who want to help, who want to reach out in a significant way. How, How best would you advise people who want to help veterans, not just on Veterans Day, but on any day, to 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 help veterans get the the help and support that they in turn need. Well, that's a really good question, Matt. You know, I struggle with that every single day because I feel like I can't do it alone, and I need people out there um, helping us. I mean, the big thing is is not to be silent. If you know a veteran or see a veteran, and um, maybe you just walk up. Maybe it starts with one veteran, and it, and it goes from there. Hey, have you have you gone to the VA? Hey, do you get a home loan through the VA? Did you know that this is available to you? Do you know that you can get your property tax? Um, you can you can get a discount on your property tax for being a, a veteran. Um, hey, didn't you serve in Vietnam? Um, you know, when's the last time you filed a claim, or when's the last time you really had your health checked and and you know made sure that you're okay. I mean, we need volunteers up at the hospital, too. I mean, we just need people to stop really burying their heads in the sand. I mean, everyone knows a veteran. If you're not directly affected by a veteran, you know someone who is. Um, Because you're absolutely right. I mean, gone are the days, the glory days of the greatest generation and, and, and World War II. I mean, we have gone through more than a decade of war, and because it's far away and because it's waning, um, maybe we're not talking about it or thinking about it as much. But this is exactly the time when we need to be thinking about it. These are, these are the times where folks are coming home now and they're struggling. We're, we're 5, 10, you know, 12 years into this. These are the guys who went through in 03 and 04 who are really struggling now and need the help. Um, and, you know, at the VA, we're, we're seeing them come in, but we're also not seeing them come in. I mean, we have an entire clinic dedicated to the new combat vet, the OEF, OIF, OND um, combat veteran. We will literally take this person by the hand and help them navigate the system, whether it's claims, health care, GI Bill, you know, um, you know, pension, whatever it may be. I mean, we will guide them through the system because we understand it can be overwhelming, but you got to take that first step. And it also starts, you know, by continually doing programs like this and, and promoting the VA benefits because, um, you know, you got prideful veterans out there. Some of them don't even realize they're veterans or they feel like, oh, the other guy needs it more than me, which, which isn't the case. The VA is only as strong as the veterans who take advantage of their benefits. Of course, some of the veterans, it wouldn't be the majority, but, but, but some of them, would there'd be an even bigger barrier. Uh, it's, it's the homeless vet. It's the, it's the vet with, with the drug abuse problems. And, that, uh-huh. and, and of course, uh, you know, the average person, it's, it's even harder to reach out to somebody like that. Well, here in Utah, we've got a pretty good handle on our, on our homeless veteran situation. Um, you may or may not be aware of um, Secretary Eric Shinseki's um, uh, declaration that he made three or four years ago about ending veteran homelessness by 2015. And here in Utah, we're pretty close. 
Um, we have a 72-bed transitional housing facility on the campus of the VA that right now has 16 open rooms. So that tells you everything you need to know. I mean, here in Utah, if you are a homeless veteran and you want some structure and you want some treatment and you really want to give it a go, there is a place for you. Now, it is the chronically homeless veterans that we struggle with, and these are the guys who necessarily maybe maybe don't trust the system or, um, you know, don't want that structure, but we are still trying to get to them. But here in Utah, if you, if you want it, you can have it. We have the services available and the, and the you know, the, the roof over their head, so to speak. Jill, there's a lot of people who have had um, either had a negative experience with the VA or have heard that other people have had negative experiences with the VA. Now, I can attest in particular, having covered uh, the Salt Lake City VA for a number of years, that you're probably not going to find a better uh, VA system uh, in the country than you'll find in Salt Lake City and the wider Utah area. That that notwithstanding, there's a lot of people who just generally have a, a negative reaction when they hear those two letters together. How is the sure. VA working to to change perceptions? Well, you know, Matt, I'm, I'm constantly working um, because I'm on the inside, and I, I know the good people that work here, and I know their hearts, and I know, you know, why they work at the VA, and, you know, a third of us are veterans, so we're here for the right reason. But you're right. There is that stereotype, and we're always, always going to battle that. Are we a perfect system? Absolutely not. I mean, there are veterans who have bad experiences. Um, you know, there's the occasional veteran that falls through the cracks. And all I can say is we're not the VA of, of old. Um, we still have our Vietnam guys who, who have got that bad taste in their mouth, who are slowly coming back to us and, and discovering uh, the new VA. Um, but, you know, we just keep, have to keep hammering. Um, the VA has changed. It's not your dad's VA anymore. We're taking care of women veterans. Um, we're, we're delivering babies. Um, we're trying to uh, make up for past mistakes, mainly for our, our Vietnam-era guys, even, even the Cold War era. It's just not the same VA as it used to be now. Is it a government entity? Is there red tape? Is it a huge bureaucracy? Absolutely. And it even frustrates me at times. But I know the hearts and minds are in the right place. And if someone is persistent and really listens and comes forward and wants the help, they will get the help. If they have a bad experience, um, uh, I, I absolutely hate it when someone comes to us for the first time and has a bad experience. I only hope that they know um, that that's one person, one bad experience. The system as a whole is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I'm ready to just throw out my own personal phone number. If you have a bad experience, call me. <laughs> because um, we really do care and we really do love what we do. And, man, it's why we come to work every day, to take care of veterans. I mean, we're all working today. We're, we're manning phones um, for 12 hours here in the lobby at Channel 2, you know, asking veterans and family members to call in and get information on their, on their veterans' benefits. Yeah, I guess it's a it's a good opportunity on Veterans Day to get to get the word out. That's what we're Absolutely. doing, of course, here on Access Utah. If you just joined us, we're talking um, with uh, uh, Matt Laplante, who's uh, with the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. He covered Veterans Affairs for Salt Lake Tribune for seven years, and he's a he's a Navy uh, veteran. We're also uh, talking with Jill Atwood 
who is uh, with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, Public uh, Affairs in the uh, Salt Lake area, and a veteran as well. Uh, we just have another uh, five minutes left with Jill Atwood, and then we're going to uh, bring in uh, Stacy Bear, former U.S. Army captain and director of Sierra Club Outdoors Mission. Talk about an initiative to reconnect Americans, veterans in particular, to the outdoors and use of nature to facilitate integration. Later on in the program, former uh, Utah Department of Veterans Affairs Executive Director Terry Scow. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Matt LaPlante, uh, you wrote an article recently about uh, female veterans uh, suffering PS, PTSD, some of those being overlooked. Right. I think the uh, the way we think about veterans uh, really needs to change. The largest uh, growing group of veterans or the fastest growing group of veterans are, are female veterans um, because uh, women are serving in the military at numbers uh, that are greater than ever before and are returning from that service now. And they're having uh, experiences uh, now because they fight side by side with men in wars uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan that really have, have no front. Uh, you know, particularly the war in Iraq, the war in Iraq had, had no real front line. Um, and so um, they're having combat experiences uh, in numbers uh, that are different than ever before. And so the entire system uh, has had to adjust to this, has had to understand that women uh, often suffer PTSD in different ways than men do. Uh, it does not make their conditions any uh, less serious or of concern. Um, you know, Jill just mentioned the VA is, is now delivering babies. I mean, this is a very different VA. And maybe, Jill, you can talk a little bit about you know, services for female veterans and, and what's changing and what's happening uh, at the Salt Lake VA of note for women who have served uh, not just in combat, but served um, at all. Sure. Yeah, the VA has a comprehensive women's clinic that's obviously devoted um, specifically to women. Um, we have OBGYN care. Um, in the last year or so, I want to say Dr. Rose has taken care of and delivered about 50 babies. So it just tells you how times are changing with the VA. And uh, we have a particular challenge with the women. Matt is right, because first of all, they don't think of themselves as veterans, so we have to educate them, and we also have to educate our own staff. I mean, it is a culture change. Fifteen percent of the active military are women. Here in Utah, we have about 16,000 female veterans. And uh, they do struggle with post-traumatic stress, just like the men. Um, and sometimes that is compounded by military sexual trauma, um, by, you know, a, either a peer or a commander in the military. And sometimes that's where the post-traumatic stress comes from. Women are a little bit different when they come back. Um, we find that the transition is a little harder for them, and it lasts a little bit longer because they're thrust right back into that caregiver role. They're trying to find jobs. They're trying to take care of their families. They're, you know, they're trying to go back to school. And so they're taking care of everybody except themselves. And so they really suffer for a few years um, until we can find them and, and recognize them and get them to understand that they are veterans and that they do have services available. And they have um, a family at the VA. We have wonderful, wonderful facilities for women. We have peer support groups. We have, um, like I said, the OBGYN care. We have just your basic primary care. Anything that um, 
any type of health care unique to a woman, we have at the VA um, female providers. Um, they don't. They will not have to sit next to um, a male veteran if, if they don't want to, if they're troubled by that. It's a, it is a very private clinic, um, trauma-sensitive yoga. I mean, we have everything um, right there for a female veteran. All they have to do is, is take that first step and come in and see us. You know, one of the things that um, I think a lot of people uh, don't uh, consider is, is just like the element of gender roles in how we perceive veterans. And certainly, you know, when a man comes back from combat and if he's out uh, late at night drinking with his buddies and if he's a little aggressive and unruly and, you know, I mean, it's, it, there's almost this kind of like acceptance of, well, that's his role, right? Like that's sure. fine. He's playing out his gender role and that's fine. A woman comes back. Um, and does those same things, and we have words for women like that, and they're not nice words at all, and and they're they're completely unfair because she's had the same experiences. Chances are she's had the same experiences as that man. Um, Jill, if you could talk a little bit about um, you know gender roles and and how society perceives you know veterans and and how that might change to help offer an added measure of compassion and empathy to female vets. Well, there is a, 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 an identity thing here. I mean, a woman comes back, and first of all, she doesn't identify herself as a veteran. So, so why would anyone else? Um, she's she's thrust back into her her normal life, and um, you know, usually if she's married, someone will come up and 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 you know, they'll just assume that the the husband is the veteran. Um, we as a society have to change our way of thinking. These women have been on the front lines right alongside the men. As, as Matt explained, this, this, this war does not um, discriminate men and women. There is no front line. These women are right alongside the men in the convoys, in the security forces. They're being, they're being blown up. They're being shot at. They're forced to protect themselves right alongside the men. So why is it that they're treated less than when they come home? It's, it's unacceptable. And part of the problem is it's, 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 it's the male forces who have a, are having trouble serving right alongside the females. It's, it's not the combat situation where women are struggling. It's the downtime. It's the behind the scenes in the military where there's, uh, there's the problem, where there's you know, the, the, the boundaries are gray. And um, once I think men can come to terms with the fact that a female can be in the military and serve alongside them just as a co-soldier, um, the better off we'll be. I know, uh, Jalat, would we uh, we need to to, to uh, let you go, I think, by 930. So we'd, we're past about three minutes. <laughs> so thank you very much. Yeah. No, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Jill Atwood, who is a public affairs officer with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Thank you. We're going to take a brief break. We'll come back with Matt LaPlante with the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University, former reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune covering uh, veterans affairs. He's a veteran himself in the Navy. And we'll uh, bring in um, Stacy Bear, who is the director of the Sierra Club's Outdoors Mission. He's a former U.S. Army captain. We'll talk about an initiative to reconnect Americans, veterans in particular, to the outdoors and the use of nature to facilitate reintegration of veterans. That's our general theme, reintegration of veterans, what we can do to help on this Veterans Day. More following the break. 
fantastic young classical musicians come from every corner of America. On this week's From the Top, we'll meet a 17-year-old who, having grown up in one of the toughest neighborhoods in San Francisco, has emerged to become a formidable young mezzo-soprano. That's From the Top with me, Christopher O'Reilly, this week. On Utah Public Radio, Fridays at 2, repeated Sundays at 9. And programming is made possible in part by our members and the USU Extension 4-H and Youth Programs, saluting the 4-H volunteer leaders and parents who work with and support youth in their development of various skills and enabling them to reach their fullest potential. Information at utah4h.org. It's Veterans Day, of course. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about uh, veterans who serve their country, problems they have when they come home, what we can do to help. Reintegration is what it's called. And uh, we're talking with Matt LaPlante, who's an assistant professor of journaliz- journalism in the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. Uh, he covered Veterans Affairs for seven years for the Salt Lake Tribune. He is a U.S. Navy veteran himself. And uh, coming up later in the program, we'll talk with the former executive director of Utah Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, Terry Scow. Right now, we uh, bring in uh, to uh, talk about the outdoors and open space, uh, Stacy Bear, who is a, a former U.S. Army captain and director of the Sierra Club Outdoors Mission. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be on the program, and it's great to be running this program out of Salt Lake City. Yes, you're, you're based out of Salt Lake City. This is a national program, I understand. It is a national program. The Sierra Club, a lot of people don't realize the Sierra Club's long history with the military and how we've supported the military and, and the number of veterans that have gotten engaged in the Sierra Club over the years. Our first executive director, full-time executive director, was David Brower, who served with the 10th Mountain Division in World War II. But this program specifically was started in 2006 by a veteran ally, Martin LeBlanc, who is now uh, over at Islandwood Schools in the Pacific Northwest. But in 2011, uh, we had been operating from about 2006 to 2011, um, supporting a lot of different partners to get them outdoors. And then in 2011, we started doing more direct service work to get people like myself and other veterans and active duty service members and their families, Reserve and National Guard, outdoors because we found the outdoors to be an incredibly therapeutic place, a place where people could reconnect with their families, with their community, with other veterans. And one of the two of the things we always like to talk about are, one, making sure that our service members can enjoy the land they fought to defend, and uh, and two, that the outdoors are really one of the one of the best places where you can replicate the really the really great things that occurred in combat or occurred on a deployment or occurred in service, and that's camaraderie. Sense of sense of purpose and mission, and and, um, and just kind of the accomplishment and trust uh, that that one can find in the outdoors. I'm not sure if you've uh, heard of Doug Peacock. I interviewed him just recently. Uh, he writes on outdoor issues, uh, environmental issues. He uh, he was injured in uh, Vietnam. He said he credits the outdoors, national parks. He took off in the national parks, basically lived there for several years. He credits that with helping him, helping him uh, get his get his head straight after after the war. Without a doubt, I actually had a, had the chance to talk with Doug Peacock over the phone a couple months ago, which was a huge honor. I mean, what we're doing in terms of connecting service members and veterans to the outdoors is not a new movement. I mean, it's it's historic, right? I mean, you can go back to the key figures in 
the three major monotheistic religions in the world and, and see how wilderness plays a significant role. And, it, and it's also not just for veterans, right? I mean, everybody faces trauma. Everybody has trauma in their own lives. How we get it as veterans might be unique, but the fact that we have trauma is not unique in the outdoors plays this really central healing role. And one of the things that's really exciting that's happening now is this last summer with the University of Michigan, we published some research that showed not just the anecdotal evidence that the outdoors are great for returning veterans, which we know and Doug Peacock knows, and um, Mallory, who was the British mountaineer who made the attempt on Everest, all those guys were World War I veterans, you know, that, that, that we all know anecdotally, but we're starting to put the science behind it. And um, Professor Daniel Dustin, who's a Vietnam veteran at the University of Utah, is working, um, we're working together to put together the first academic symposium on the value of the outdoors and nature and wilderness for veterans uh, September 17th through the 20th in 2014. So we're, we're actually starting to see some academic science and some social science behind us uh, on what we're talking about. And um, we're looking to get down in April with Doug Peacock and a group of existing veterans, and we're talking to the Navajo co-talkers and hoping those co-talkers who are still alive and able can come out with us and, and really you know, multi-generationally get veterans in the outdoors together. And, and, and Utah is, is, of course, a great backdrop to do that. So there's a lot of research ongoing on this subject, but what do we know right now? Why why do the outdoors work so well for people uh, reintegrating uh, after military service? You know, and, and like I said, there is a lot of research going on. I, I think why it works so well um, it's because men or women who join the military, military are motivated by wanting to connect to something much bigger than themselves, wanting to serve, uh, and wanting to push themselves and challenge themselves physically and mentally. And when you come out of the military and you come home, you know, we have a fantastic country that has responded really quite well to, to this challenge, but, but you're still kind of isolated and, uh, you know, with all the technology, that's great, but, but it's not a physical connection. And, and I think in the outdoors, you get that physical connection. I think it works because you're able to push yourself. And at the same time, you're also able to relax and just take in this amazing country that we fought for, and you get to see that in our public lands. But I, I really got to think it's, it's the camaraderie that you can find in the outdoors. It's, it's the sense of purpose. It's the sense of meaning. It's the sense of being part of something far bigger than yourself that can be hard to find in, in an urban or rural or even suburban environment, that, but that you can find outdoors. Um, so, yeah, it's in, and being able to push yourself and challenge yourself again uh, is all part of, I think, why, why it really works. But uh, I think there's something magical that happens out there, and I think it's sometimes difficult to explain away magic the, uh, and the power that you get out there. Yeah, absolutely. The, the the Sierra Club, uh, for better or worse, uh, is often aligned in the conventional wisdom with other progressive organizations, liberal organizations, um, veterans. Uh, also, for kind of better or worse, accurately or inaccurately, are often uh, thought of conventionally as as a group of very conservative Americans. How do you how do you bridge this uh, communications divide, even if it's just a perceived divide? How do you how do you make it clear that uh, there, there's a place in your organizations for veterans and and there are uh, you know there are roles for your organization in the lives of veterans? 
Yeah, I think. I mean, I think those perceptions are very real on on both sides, um, whether it be from the quote unquote environmentalist groups or you know conservative veterans. Uh, Josh Brandon, who runs our, um, I, I oversee all of our Sierra Club outdoors programs. Like I said, connecting two hundred fifty thousand people a year to the outdoors. And Josh Brandon, uh, who retired out of the military last uh, September, runs our our military program. And a lot of the things we talk about are one: the outdoors is not a conservative or liberal issue. And and historically, the outdoors and the environment have been a a staunchly Republican issue. I mean, if you look at the the creation of the EPA, the Clean Air Act, I mean, that was Nixon. If you look at, you know, the creation of our first national park, Yosemite, that was Teddy Roosevelt, right, who was also a veteran. And and that was something, you know, he worked directly with John Muir on that. So we we talk a lot about the history of it. um, and, And we also just point to the numbers that show the number of veterans who are in the Sierra Club and the number of veterans in leadership positions. Ten percent of Sierra Club volunteer leadership at the chapter level is, is run by veterans of all five branches being represented. We believe that our membership is about 10 to 15 percent veteran, which, you know, surpasses, you know, nationally about five percent of the population is veterans. So veterans are welcome. Veterans are encouraged and veterans are coming to the Sierra Club and have been at the Sierra Club for a really long time in leadership positions. We point out some of the guys like Kim Crumbo, who, you know, was a Navy SEAL and, and came back to Utah and, and works in the Sierra Club, or P.J. Wilson, who is a Vietnam veteran and, and a pretty hardcore Marine um, and, and is, you know, every bit the stereotypical Marine today, you know, crusty, surly guy uh, working on, on issues in West Virginia. So that's how we bridge that. And the other thing is we just invite people to, to come out with us and say, you know what, what's it going to hurt to come out for a hike? And, um, and I think people are able to see who we really are and, and, and understand that, that they've fought for our, our public lands, that our public lands and, and clean air and clean water, if we didn't fight for those, what did we fight for? And those are real embodiments, I think, of our Constitution and our democratic process. But, but it certainly is a communication challenge, and we just have to keep telling our story. Uh, Finally, just a couple of minutes left in this segment. We're talking with Stacey Bear uh, with the Sierra Club. He's a uh, former U.S. Army captain. Um, you have a program, this uh, piqued my interest, called Celebration of Military Child Outdoors. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, Celebration of the Military Child Outdoors, or COMCO, is one of the marquee programs that we started in 2011 with our friends at the National Military Family Association. Uh, and we also work very closely with Blue Star Families. And, and that's one of the other things I should point out. You know, we also bridge the gap through these partnerships. Iraq, Afghanistan, Veterans of America, VFWs uh, around the country are involved. But Celebration of the Military Child Outdoors last year was hosted in about 20 different communities, and it's our local Sierra Club volunteers getting together for a day in the outdoors for military families and military youth. And today in a park or at a Bureau of Land Management land or national parks, um, we've done it on national parks, state parks, city parks around the country, and it's just an opportunity for us to say thank you uh, to our military families and, and our military children because we really believe that our military children also serve as do our military spouses, and oftentimes, you know, they don't get to make the, the decision, right? I mean, a kid doesn't decide who their parents are going to be. So it's just an opportunity for us to highlight the outdoor recreation opportunities and that that, that are available to, to, to our military families. And, it, and part of that, too, is the, um, the Sierra Club is really active working with the Department of Interior and the... Uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and especially the Bureau of Land Management, uh, to, to come up with the America the Beautiful Pass, which helps 
you know, any active duty National Guard or Reserve service member and their family can, can access our public lands for free. So it's also an opportunity really to highlight some of those programs for our service members. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Stacy Bear, who's a Sierra Club Outdoors Director and a former U.S. Army Captain, Bronze Star recipient living in Salt Lake City. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, and I appreciate the focus of veterans today. And we are talking about veterans on Veterans Day here on Access Utah, and uh, we have with us uh, Matt LaPlante, uh, Assistant Professor of Journalism in the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University, former Salt Lake Tribune reporter and uh, U.S. Navy veteran. And we bring in now Terry Scow, former Executive Director of Utah, U- Utah Department of Veterans Affairs. Terry Scow, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so, uh, I guess the general question for you on on this Veterans Day 2013, what what are your general thoughts? What are, what are these you know the, the problems perhaps that you uh, think are most urgent, uh, most in need of addressing with regard to veterans? Well, uh, obviously, many of the folks coming back have struggles relative to employment, uh, mental health issues. So uh, we uh, certainly encourage any of your listeners who might be employers to uh, give some special consideration to hiring veterans, uh, be mindful of their special uh, skills, uh, leadership, and uh, training, and uh, teamwork, all those kind of things, because uh, uh, the lack of employment causes problems for these folks, uh, often will cause mental health struggles because they're concerned about caring for their families. Uh, clearly, uh, these folks getting education helps them equalize the skills uh, uh, from their service. Are you? Have you found that there is? I don't want to call it discrimination, but uh, there's supposed to be positive um, discrimination. You might call it, isn't there? You did uh, preference for veterans, or at least preserving jobs. Do you, do you find that that is not happening? There is. Uh, there is preference for rehiring veterans and hiring veterans. But sometimes there are mis, uh, misunderstandings, if you will, or lack of education on the, on the part of some employers because they are concerned about folks that might have PTSD or those kind of things. And so one of the challenges that we had while I was on the job and we continue to have them today is to make sure that employers understand that there are a number of great programs out there to assist veterans and uh, just let them know that they're a great asset in terms of, of hiring them. Veterans still remain slightly higher than the national average uh, in the unemployment rate. And so, again, helping folks understand that you've seen great impetus recently about folks wanting to hire veterans. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if we still have you. Do we still have you, Terry Scott? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Yeah, the, the phone line's a little iffy and, and it, it dropped out. Could you repeat that last part? Well, yeah, there is a great. Uh, desire to hire veterans and help veterans out there. And uh, we want to make sure that folks are aware uh, of uh, the great skills of veterans. One of the things that I would do is I'd put in a plug for the Department of Workforce Services. Uh, They have, uh, obviously, the ability to list jobs. They give preference to veterans. And so uh, some employers use them, some of them don't. But we would urge them to go to the uh, Utah Department of, Vet, of uh, Workforce Services website to list their jobs, and that way veterans are given a first crack. The other thing I'd mention is that around the state, uh, some of the municipalities do not list their jobs with Workforce Services. So if there's a job in St. George or in Logan, 
uh, veterans who might be interested are not aware of the jobs because they're only listed on the local municipality worksites or websites. So we're urging folks to um, list those jobs with workforce services so that veterans can get a shot at them. Matt LaPlante, I'm looking at a headline here, an article you wrote for the Salt Lake Tribune. Program finds families for veterans is the is the headline. This is an intriguing. I don't know if it's still ongoing. But, yeah, and uh, I don't know the status of this program, but it was fascinating to look at. This was a few years ago. Um, the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, figured out that um, one of the things that veterans, uh, particularly veterans suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress or maybe addiction issues, mental health issues, uh, were often estranged from their own families. And for one reason or another, that estrangement couldn't be mended. And so one of the things that the department started to do as a pilot program is to connect veterans with uh, with put them into homes like people's homes, families, homes as uh, as a tenant, but also a, a family member. Um, and uh, the uh, the the little family unit that I visited was this uh, veteran in his 60s who who had uh, been dealing with addiction and mental health issues, and uh, this beautiful elderly woman in her 80s who had lost her husband a few years earlier and wanted to fill her home with somebody who she could continue to take care of because she had taken care of her husband in in the last few years of his life. And it was this just wonderful, quirky um, relationship, but it really seemed to be working. And uh, maybe, Terry, you could talk a little bit about, maybe not particularly this program, but, Terry, if you could talk about the need for veterans to have families, either by the traditional definition or by kind of a a new definition of of what a family is and and what role that plays in in the lives of people who are coming back from military service. Uh, And we're we're, uh, – he's consulting with our uh, our producer, so I'm not sure – I don't know, uh, Terry Scott. Did you hear uh, Matt's uh, question? I know you were consulting with our producer uh, there. Uh, no, no, I didn't. Would you repeat it for me, please? Sure, Terry. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of of family, uh, both kind of the the traditional definition of family, and also, um, you know, you know, a, a different definition, perhaps that that encompasses the people who surround a veteran and give them support. How important is it for for veterans to have that kind of support network? Um, available to them as they're coming home and reintegrating? Well, it's vital, uh, Matt. Uh, one of the things that we found that sometimes uh, folks who come back, they've got some challenges. Sometimes they'll have uh, a little bit of depression, uh, obviously uh, some PTSD from some of their experiences, and uh, sometimes they do turn to alcohol, and family support is so crucial uh, to, one, reinforce uh, the um, the support for them, but also to give them uh, a little bit of extra support. And we have found that probably the single most important thing for these folks is to have support from, you know, their immediate family and their extended family as well. So you cannot underscore that. And I think that's part of the reason why the VA has opened up uh, some of their uh, counseling in the vet centers to allow spouses to come in too to help them understand uh, what the, uh, the folks have went through. 
We, uh, Terry Scott, we talked earlier in the program. I want to pose this question to you here at the end. We just have a couple minutes left uh, because I think it's important. Um, we talked about how it's a small percentage of Americans who actually serve in the military with the all-volunteer military service. And so uh, a lot of us, and I, I can speak for myself, I'm not a veteran, I sometimes don't know how to react to, you know, how to reach out to perhaps a someone who served in the military that uh, perhaps I perceive is struggling. Uh, uh, there's kind of a, a gap there. How to bridge that gap? Well, I think the first thing uh, is to say thank you. Even uh, to this day, as I see folks in the airports and other areas wearing a military hat or a veteran's hat, I say thank you to them. The other thing for those folks who are deployed, uh, who will help the, uh, the wife sho- shovel her sidewalks, who will help her mower lawn, who will give her a respite uh, for her children. So in our neighborhoods across this state, there are families of deployed uh, service members and obviously uh, folks who are back now. And uh, I think the important thing is to rally around them. And act, simple acts of, cur- of kindness are so important uh, to let folks know how much we value them. I remember a few years ago, I had a former POW that lived down the street from me, didn't even know it until I saw him at a POW lunch. And I felt bad because I would have reached out to him the other thing is I urge any veterans uh, who are listening to record your story. It is so crucial. So many of our World War II veterans are passing away. More, most of them are in their late 80s and uh, 90s. But get out a tape recorder, tell your story, because it matters to your children and your grandchildren. Great advice. Great advice. Uh, we'll be having a program a little later on, closer to Thanksgiving, about the National Day of Listening, which uh, it's a program that encourages people on the day after Thanksgiving to record their uh, loved ones' stories. That that might be an opportune time. Uh, Terry Scow, uh, former executive director of Utah Department of Veterans Affairs, thank you so much. Thank you, and thanks to our veterans and their families who are listening. And Matt LaPlante, uh, assistant professor of journalism at Utah State University, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Uh, we hope you'll join us, of course, uh, tomorrow for Access Utah. We're talking about the human body and evolution. It's our interesting topic for tomorrow. For producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. You may think of the old grind as your work week, but from a dietary perspective, the old grind links your holiday turkey with dinosaurs. Before making gravy this Thanksgiving, find the densely muscular organ amid your turkey's giblets. This is the turkey's gizzard, which preceded the living bird's intestine. In its tough-walled gizzard, a bird mechanically breaks down hard or tough foodstuffs like we mammals use our molars. Reducing chunks to crumbs gives digestive enzymes the large surface areas needed to efficiently digest food. Being toothless, birds must swallow most nuts, seeds, bugs, and mollusks whole. In the gizzard, these items are churned, crushed, and ground up, aided by ingested sand, grit, or small stones called gastroliths. A turkey's gizzard squeezes with twice the force of our own jaws. At 400 pounds per square inch, this force shatters acorns and even hickory nuts. 
The gizzard works like the ball mills used in mining, wherein heavy rotating iron drums loaded with steel balls pulverize rock ore. Like a gem tumbler, though, the gizzard eventually smooths and polishes its gastroliths. Having thus lost their utility, these stones are regurgitated. Gastroliths did not originate with birds, but rather with their dinosaur ancestors. Piles of polished stones sometimes occur amid the fossil ribs of big plant-eating dinosaurs, such as a massive seismosaurus skeleton from New Mexico. These beasts had weak, nipping teeth, not molars, so those smooth stones are likely gastroliths. In east-central Utah, polished dinosaur gastroliths can be common in the drab mudstones beneath the colorful Morrison rock stratum. Most birds have a muscular gizzard, even insectivorous nighthawks and swallows. Powerful gizzards typify pheasants, turkeys, and grouse, which all eat hard seeds, nuts, or tree buds. Even waterfowl need gizzards. Mallards, for instance, crush and grind mollusks in their gizzards. They choose to ingest grit the size of buckshot and sinkers. Ducks that eat these shot pellets are poisoned by the lead. Making shot with safer materials can end this needless poisoning of our waterfowl. California and the U.S. military are leading the way so our birds can safely pursue what is truly their ancient grind. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Did you know that athletic trainers are healthcare providers who are licensed and certified in 49 of the 50 states? In addition to caring for athletes, they help the military and other physically demanding industries. Athletic trainers prevent injuries and help return people back to work or the playing field if they do get hurt. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.